I don't believe in no one's scenarios. Data, 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 I cannot make bricks without clay. I don't know where you get your delusions, laser brain. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio show. Today we are talking about international PhDs and how to get hired in industry when you need a visa. Uh, despite everything going on in uh, the U.S. and all of the changes due to the pandemic uh, and otherwise, you still can get hired by a U.S. company and sponsored by a U.S. company uh, no matter what visa you're on or what visa you need. The key is to create a plan uh, a plan created or guided by legal counsel. A lot of PhDs tend to think that if they read enough online on various websites, they are an immigration attorney, uh, but you are not. You do not have a JD, which is why we have brought a JD on today's show. Uh, one of the top U.S. immigration attorneys uh, in the U.S. and really for the U.S. in the world, uh, specializing specifically in getting PhDs uh, who have a research background, uh, work visas, uh, in particular, giving them a path all the way to their green cards. Uh, the best in the U.S. at it, uh, the best in the world at it, Brian Getson, a partner at Getson & Shots, will be with us today talking about the new uh, U.S. visa guidelines and laws, what to expect, the good news, the bad news, and everything in between. But first, as always, we have an incredible panel, international PhDs who have come on to tell you how they transitioned into industry, how they overcame their visa struggles and challenges to get hired uh, despite the pandemic, despite their individual struggles, struggles that you're likely having now if you are an international PhD. So let's jump in and start with our panel now. So I'm going to bring on our panel now. Very excited uh, for this. We have Sharath, who's joining us. Vatsav is joining us as well. And we'll bring them on. And then we have Arya. Always great. Thanks. Good to see you. Hi, Sharath. Hi, Vatsav. Hi, Arya. Great panel today. Hello. All have been very helpful in the international PhD community. So thanks for, thanks for being on here and, and for helping us inspire other international PhDs. So maybe we could just start by having you all introduce yourself and uh, where you're at in your career and who you're working with, uh, starting with you, Sharath. So, hey, sir, and hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Sharath Chandra Madasu. I am a, a senior scientist at Ibex Biosciences, and uh, I'm on currently on H1B. If you're interested, so you can ask me questions about it. And uh, tell about me. Thank you. Lots of same question to you. Hi, Isaiah. Thanks for having me. Um, I am uh, currently at a technical sales specialist position with Thermo Fisher Scientific, um, and I started off like everybody else here as a PhD and a postdoc and I've transitioned a couple of roles. Um, so I moved into first a clinical research coordinator, moved quickly from there to a program manager role. And then now I'm in uh, sales. Um, and I am Indian by origin. So I was lucky to be able to apply for a green card and I uh, have a employment authorization document that enables me to work in the US. So that's where I'm at. Right immigration-wise. Congrats. Thank you very much, Vatsav. And Arya, thanks for waiting. Hi. Hi, Isaiah. Nice to see you again. Yeah. And hi, everyone. Uh, so I'm Arya. I'm working as a medical science liaison at Tempest. 
Tempest is a cancer biotech company, and um, I just joined Tempest about eight months ago. And this is my third industry position, and currently I'm on an H-1B visa. All right. Well, thank you all for sharing that. Um, so you, you all understand the struggles of an international PhD, and I think if you go back to maybe where you were struggling in your job search overall, you felt the extra weight of being an international PhD, of needing a visa, sponsorship, not having, you know, at that time, you're, you're, uh, uh, an H-1B or a green card or, or uh, whatever the visa was. Can you talk to us about the challenges you had at that time and then how you overcame those challenges uh, to get hired and I guess how your mindset has changed? Uh, and what we're trying to do is, you know, take the attendees and help them see that it is possible there is a path forward and how to shift their mindset. Uh, so I'll start with you, Sharath. Yeah, so during my final days of my PhD, I was applying for a lot of jobs and uh, a lot of recruiters did contact me about open positions, but they wanted someone who could start immediately like tomorrow. And I, was, I still had to wait for OPT. So most of you students who are international students could relate to this. So if you're waiting for your OPT, you may get calls, but they want someone who could start tomorrow. You just have to let them know that your your specific OPT start date where you can start working so they can keep you in mind and get back to you after that and you definitely have to follow up with the recruiters and particularly in my position uh my company it i, I got lucky because they are willing to sponsor an h1b they do understand uh, the problems of international students so i got lucky that way but during my first year i was on OPT the way i got this job is through networking as it's the cheeky scientist mantra you have to network either online in person in person is better but since now we're in a in a pandemic situation so you got to up your uh, shoes and and uh, start networking on linkedin add value as is i would always say add value to who are you contacting then just saying hi i want to add, uh, add you to my network wouldn't help you much they'll add you but it's not what you want so you got to network add value to them keep the communication lines open so that uh, so that's my small short transition story and after uh joining the company you go through your h1b process so it, it's a lottery process it's iterative you get picked up uh, and since you're uh, opt and most of you are in stem fields you get three chances to be picked up in the lottery first and once you're in h1b you have three years and then you can extend based on that and i think brian gibson will get into how to get to the green card situation so he'll be the best person person to ask questions. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad you started with, you know, focusing on getting into the career and getting in front of employers and, and the networking piece. Right. Uh, you know, one of the best parts about the Cheeky Scientist programs, like the International PhD community, is the network and it's the right. uh, culture that's fostered. You, everybody wants to network. They make it easy, uh, much easier than if you're out there trying to do it by yourself. And there's a structured process for it. You know, and, and this process in particular is specific for international PhDs, having those that have transitioned before you who will help you because you've invested in getting hired. There's a lot of people out there that just are, you know, we call them looky-loos. They're just out there looking around, trying to get free advice, et cetera. It's a big difference when somebody approaches one of our panelists, for example, that's also, that has committed, that's in uh, a cheeky scientist in, in the international PhD community. Um, but it's, it's understanding which visa process is right for you, not missing critical deadlines, but also networking and executing a job search. And Sharath, okay. great insights. Thank you. Vatsav, same question to you. So, you know, what were those 
those challenges that you had, particularly as an international PhD, and, and how'd you overcome them? Sure. Um, well, I graduated uh, 2013, so it's been a while since I finished my PhD. There was no cheeky scientist back then, or at least I wasn't aware of it. So <laughs> I would have gladly joined you guys if I had known. Um, but I started looking into it actually really in my postdoc. Um, so right after I graduated, I did take up a postdoctoral position. Um, but I figured out right away what, like I was trying to figure out right away what I wanted in my career. So I did, a, I had to do an extra work uh, focusing on immigration like we all here are doing right now. So I started right away from day one of my postdoc. Okay, what, what, what are my options available? Where can I go? Um, I immediately found a lawyer and uh, we started working. It was a relationship with my lawyer that I had for two, three years to build my case, right? So, and really want to piggyback on Shara, uh, what he said about networking and uh, really, uh, you know, talking to people, uh, this is really important. We get caught up with research every day and, you know, it's easy to put it on the back burner, but, um, you know, we really have to put yourself out there, right? And talk to people, um, see what's available, what are the different options available. A lot of the career options I had, I didn't even know about um, when I was a postdoc. So those, you know, we have to do a little bit of a groundwork there, if, uh, both focusing on immigration as well as uh, career. Yeah, and I, I like that you said that because I think a lot of us, we, we go back to what's comfortable. When times get difficult, our brains yeah. are lazy by nature, right? We're like, oh, this visa process is challenging. The job search is challenging. I'm going to, I got too many experiments to focus on anyway, mm-hmm. or I'm just going to go to this seminar instead. Uh, you, you really have to take your career into your own hands, take it seriously, map it out, get very specific, record it like you would record data in a lab note, notebook every day. It's, it's a ve- especially for international PhDs, it's such a specific process, specific deadlines. You got to stay up to date on what has actually changed, not like the, the fear mongering, right? The, yep. uh, things that aren't laws uh, uh, yet, but you have to look at the laws, what's going on, make sure you're, you're following the correct advice and get around people who have the same kind of mindset. So. Uh, great, great insights. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Vatsov. Really appreciate your time. And Arya, thank you for waiting. Uh, same question to you. Do you want me to repeat it? No, I got it. <laughs> thank, you. Uh, thank you, Isaiah. And I echo what everyone said in this panel, um, Sharath and Vatsov. Like, I think there can be a lot of hurdles to being an international PhD, but I think we are all examples here on that it can be done, right? So, my journey started when I was working on my PhD. I came on an F1 visa. And um, as I was close to writing my thesis, um, I started applying for my OPT. And I was also writing my thesis and looking for jobs at the same time. I know a lot of people think it's overwhelming. Yes, it is, but it can be done. Um, and I did, as soon as I, um, I got my first job, actually, um, I heard about the company through a cheeky associate. So again, going back to Isaiah about networking is so crucial. Um, I, I started as a project leader at Champions Oncology. That was my first job. I started there as an OPT on OPT. And then I asked them for H1B sponsorship. They agreed. Um, but after about a year, I had to move to Seattle with my husband. So I kind of resigned that position. I started looking for new positions. I uh, ABM Biotechnology, which is a, which is a startup biotech, um, and there is a scientific program director for about three years, and they did sponsor my H-1B. 
Um, and I was lucky enough to be picked on my first, um, you know, first lottery. So that was lucky. But I think the point that I want to make is that networking is really important and also trying to find ways that are willing to take, um, you know, international, international students. And I think you'll find that more common in smaller biotechs. Um, but again, that, that doesn't exclude you from trying larger biotechs. But, you know, while you're gaining yes. that industry experience, you can definitely go out, you know, reach out to smaller biotechs and, and gain experience there. And right now I'm a MSL at Tempest. And, uh, and as you all know, breaking into the MSL role is extremely hard and having without any prior MSL experience. And I have the visa hurdle where my H1B needs to be transferred from my old company to my new company. And what is really important is that um, the H1B premium processing. So if you do premium processing, you can transfer that within two weeks. And the point I want to make is laws change all the time. And there was a point in my job search when premium processing was paused and then it started up again. So it's so important for us to be up to date on all the laws. And like Isaiah said, it's really complicated. Um, you need people like Brian Jetson here to really um, break down those laws and what does that actually mean for you? And being up to date on that information is really important uh, in your job search. So, um, so just to summarize, I just want to say, don't despair. I think we are all examples here of it can be done uh, at whatever stage you are. Uh, have all the information about the visa program. Know what what visas you are eligible for. Have all the information. Uh, be confident, you know, in the interview session, and then they will sponsor you if they think you're the right candidate. So that's all I want to say. Yeah, well said, Aria. Thank you very much. And I just I love that message to. Uh, to dig in, you can do this. I mean, if you can get a PhD, you can really do anything. Like the, the, it's not that the information uh, is so complex you can't put it together. It's just you need to get expert advice like you would in your niche PhD background. Uh, and you need to get around people that are speaking that language and that understand what you need to do. Uh, and just realize that there's a lot of changes right now. And there are people that are staying up to date. It's their full-time job to stay up to date on that, like Brian, who, who we will be bringing on next. So thank you, panel. Great to see all of you. Shroth, Vatsav. Arya, thank you. Great to see you. Thank you, Andrew. Please thank our panel again if you have not already. And with that, I'm going to bring on Brian. Very excited uh, for Brian to come on and share with us what is new uh, in the world of getting researchers hired uh, in the U.S. Hi, Brian. Hey, good afternoon, Isaiah. How are you? Pretty good. How are you? Still uh, the home office? Yeah, my head is spinning, Isaiah, with everything that's yeah. happening. Yeah, I can imagine. So great panel. But yeah, can you, uh, right on the heels of what Aria was saying about staying up to date, can you give us some sure. inside information on what's so, changing? There's a lot going on right now, Isaiah. Hmm. And there's good and there's bad. And it's important to understand everything. You can't ignore the bad because you have to deal with the bad. So, you know, immigration Again, they are still approving people's cases. They're still giving out green cards. They're still giving out temporary visas. They're open for business. But certainly it is a different world in 2020 than it was in 2019. And everybody has been talking about the, the challenges and how you can overcome them. And that all remains true. But you really have to understand what's going on and you have to plan in advance and you have to stay positive and you have to push through it and you have to find a way. 
because the U.S. needs researchers, they need scientists, and it's changing so much that you just have to really know what's going on. So let's start with the good, Isaiah, because we should always talk about the good first. So the first thing that happened is that the Immigration Service was going to raise all of their fees. And the fees, especially for the green card, were going to more than double. And there was a court injunction stopping the fees from being raised. So, you know, it was supposed to go off on October 2nd, and our office was working like crazy to get everyone their cases filed before the fees were increased. I drove to the, the UPS hub to get certain things in. Really? You know, and then there was the court order. So we wound up getting a break with that. So there's been no new fee increases. Everything is still the same in terms of the fees and the forms. And they were also going to lengthen the time for premium processing to 15 business days instead of 15 calendar days, what it is right now. And all of that got enjoined by the court. So at some point, this is going to get picked up again. But at least for the immediate future, there's no fee increases. The second really positive development is with the visa bulletin. And we talk about that a lot. And the because of COVID there and the travel ban for the immigrant visas overseas, there has been less people applying for green cards. And because of that, the numbers for India and China, the waiting times have dramatically moved forward. And that's a really positive development for, you know, people from India and China that have been waiting a long, long time. And it, so the, Isaiah has up the visa bulletin. And if you scroll down a little bit, Isaiah, you can see the filing date charts. So this is the final action date chart where it's current for the whole world now in every category. And China and India are back till June of 2018 in the final action date charts. But if you keep scrolling down, Isaiah, so this is the filing date chart, okay? And USCIS this month in October is using this filing date chart right now. So when you look at this for China and India, September 1st, 2020 for EB1, basically anybody that had an EB1 case approved is eligible to file for the green card now. And if you also look at the EB3 versus the EB2, you'll see that it's faster for China and India than it is for uh, the EB2. So people that have labor certifications, perm cases that were in EB2 that were before these uh, filing dates, then what you need to do is you need to do what's called a downgrade from an EB2 to an EB3 and filed the 485. So I was busy with the fee increase, Isaiah. I'm more busy now with getting cases filed for people from India and China. So that's been a really positive development. And yeah. we always talk about how people from India and China, if they're not qualified for EB1, they should file an NIW petition first and substitute the priority date into the uh, future EB1 petition. And, you know, 
people could look at these dates now and say, oh my God, it's September 2020. I'm just going to file my EB-1. Well, a really good piece of advice I'm going to give everybody right now from India and China is just because the dates are current doesn't mean the immigration service is going to approve your EB-1 case. The legal standard is still high. It's still very hard. If you apply when you're not qualified, they're going to deny your case. And it doesn't matter that the dates have moved forward and are current because they don't do you any good unless your I-140 petition is approved. So don't let the dates fool you and give you a false sense of security into, oh, I'm going to apply for EB-1 now because the dates are current. You still need to be qualified for it and we still need to have strategies and who knows what the dates are gonna look like. But for right now, you know, uh, people from India and China have this window. Yeah. You know, we're really hoping, especially me, Isaiah, because otherwise I'm going to be up till three in the morning every night, that they use the, the filing date chart also in November, which would at least give us an extra month to be able to file everybody's case. Yes. So that's the second positive development. The third positive development is that when Congress extended the budget, they passed a law that's expanding premium processing to basically everything except a green card. So we know that USCIS has this budget problem because there's less applications being filed because of COVID. And they, the, the fee increase just got enjoined because it was really ridiculous and unfair, the fee increase. So now sort of their way to deal with the budget is to increase the premium processing. And that is phenomenal and wonderful. You, you're not going to be able to premium process a green card because they still have to run the background checks on you and all that. But the really big differences, Isaiah, is number one, you're going to be able to premium process an NIW petition now where you could not do that before. And number two is you're going to be able to premium process the EAD. And that is a huge deal where if you're filing for you know, an EAD, whether it's the, through the green card or an H4 or whatever it is, you know, that EAD can take six months, seven months, and you have no control over it. And now you'll be able to pay the premium processing and get the EAD in 15 days. So it seems you weren't even aware of this one, Isaiah. No, no, and that's, that's a, uh, exactly why all of you need to understand the difference between skimming stuff online uh, and having inside information from uh, somebody who has not just legal training, but is at the forefront of the industry because things are changing so rapidly. Like Arya said, uh, you can't just rely on what you're seeing online. Uh, not even the media, in a sense, can keep up uh, with every, everything that's changing. You might hear something go out, but did it get stopped? I mean, if Brian's going to the post office at two in the morning, trust me, things are changing very, very quickly. Um, so, you know, so that's the good, okay? And immigration hasn't implemented this new premium processing yet. They have to do the regulations. Yeah. You know, it, it's going to be a little bit of time, but that's what's coming on the horizon, okay? So now the bad. Okay. And the bad is bad, Isaiah, okay? There's no sugarcoating it, and everybody needs to understand it. So the bad has to do with the H-1B and the wage levels. So there were two new regulations. One has to do with the H-1B wage levels. So the law says that an employer has to pay 
at least the higher of the prevailing wage for the job or the actual wage paid to other uh, people working for the employer uh, in the in the same job. So what the Labor Department just did is there's four levels of prevailing wage and they did not change how the prevailing wages are determined. It's based on the degree requirements, the experience requirements, whether there's any travel requirement, whether there's any special requirements, etc. So the way that the prevailing wages are calculated has stayed the same. But what they did was these different levels, one, two, three, and four, they changed the percentage of what the prevailing wage is. So a level one wage used to be the bottom 16%, and now it's the bottom 40%. A level four wage used to be the top 67%, now it's the top 95%. Those are radical changes, Isaiah. They are, you know, they change the wages by a significant amount. Now, there's going to be hopefully a, a court challenge. I know there's going to be a court challenge to this. Hopefully there will be an injunction the way there was with the fee increase. If the administration changes, I would, you know, expect and hope that they would get rid of this regulation pretty quickly. But this is where we are right now. So what does this mean for everybody? It means that you have to talk with your employer about the prevailing wages and the H-1B sponsorship, and you have to have a plan. We always talk about having a plan in advance. And the panel, you know, earlier talked about how, you know, they were starting early on to think about how they were going to move forward with their immigration status. Well, now more than ever, with these H-1B wages being so high compared to what they were, and it will price out certain jobs. It will. Yes. And so, you know, you, you have to have an understanding of this and you have to deal with it. So how do you deal with it? Number one, complete open communication with your employer and working on this wage issue, not when you need to file the H-1B lottery in March, but right now, okay? Having the conversations about the wages. If you're in academia, start talking about the wages because a lot of academia, they, they, they will only get the prevailing wage directly from the labor department. They won't get it themselves online the way that we do with industry jobs. And you have to have that advanced planning. So you have to figure out what is your wage level and what's the correct wage level? You know, maybe you're really a level one wage and not a level two wage, and that's gonna be a big difference. And then instead of using the labor department prevailing wage survey, it's legally possible to use an independent prevailing wage survey. So, you know, I've been doing this for 25 years, Isaiah. And this is one of the most drastic changes to the H-1B program. This wage increase. And, you know, I've also worked with a, a independent wage survey company called the survey group, and they're probably going to be busier than ever. And, you know, there, there are ways to deal with this H-1B salary increase, but it's, you know, as the foreign national, 
It's knowing that this is out there and then figuring it out with your employer how to do it. So, yeah. And, I th- and I, I think we have to look at the good and the bad, like you said, create a plan, which is what I'm showing here. So one thing you'll do when you get into the international PhD community is you'll create a blueprint with multiple options. I, I, I want, Brian, I want to hear your thoughts on this. We always try to say, look, you can't take this information, this news, you have a lot else going on, you're trying to do your research, et cetera, and you can't just evade it. You can't think it's going to get better. You can't think that there's no hope. Uh, for you. You just have to learn the best option possible and take your job search even more seriously. You have to fight harder in a sense. And I, I want to hear your thoughts on that because my fear is, and I see a lot of international PhDs, they just enter this uh, area of learned helplessness and hopelessness like there's nothing they can do. There's absolutely something you can do, Isaiah, because there's different options available to you and there's different strategies and roadmaps and plans. And you know, there, there's more than one way to get to the finish line. So it's a different analysis if you're in a postdoc job or you're in industry. So when you look at your chart here and you're, you're in the postdoc job, you know, everybody can work on their OPT for three years and nothing affects this. You know, one of the things you talk about rumors, there was this rumor that people were going to lose their OPT and they were going to not have the STEM And that was one of the biggest rumors. That never happened, and I'm not expecting that to happen. So after you graduate your OPT, then, sorry, after, at the end of your three years of OPT, you need to think about how are you going to stay in the United States? And that's where having this strategy and being able to talk to me because it's a personal thing, because everybody's case is different. You know, your case is not your friend's case. It's not the case that happened in 2016. Your case with your credentials is, and your job is your own case. So you need to tailor your plan to you. So if you're in industry, sorry, if you're in academia, at the end of your OPT, you either need to have a J1, you have to have an H-1B, you have to be able to apply for the green card, or you have to go to O-1. O-1 is still available for academia. And there's no wage requirement with O-1. So now maybe you start thinking about an O-1 instead of an H-1 if you're in academia, which we would have never done that before. Yes. You know, maybe the academia is still able to sponsor you for H-1B. They can meet the wage requirement, even this new wage, or there's an independent survey or whatever it is. So figure it out. You know, J-1 is always the worst place to go because there's possibly a two-year home residency requirement. But it's better to be in J-1 if they're not, if they can't put you into H-1B, then, then nothing at all. So, again... Everyone needs to stay positive. The, this changes. If there's a new administration, it's going to change again. You know, and there, there's court actions that come into play where things get enjoined. You know, the premium was, and then it was stopped, and then it was again. So, but plan now. Talk now. Be informed now about your roadmap and start thinking about the green card. Because the green card is, a, you know, is something that you don't need to deal with this stuff 
if you have the green card. It's much easier if you're not from China or India to get the green card earlier in your career because you don't need to be as qualified for NIW as you do for EB1. If you're in industry now, you know, in industry is probably going to have a, a better opportunity to maybe pay you the, the salary that's needed. But again, with these entry level jobs, you have to start seeing, okay, here's what my salary is now in OPT. And here's what the H1B wage is now. So let's have a talk about this. How can we get there? And then maybe the O1, you have to think about that if you're qualified to avoid the H1B. You know, we used to talk about, well, only do the O1 if you don't get the H1B. But if you've been priced out of the H1B because of the wage, then you need to start thinking about the O1 now. You also have to worry about the lottery. You know, if you don't win the lottery, then how are you going to stay here? And that's either an O1 working with the employer or a green card if you're able to do that. And, you know, maybe with China and India, that EB1 date will be current at some point. And then you can think about trying an EB1 a little earlier than maybe we would otherwise if it's the only way for you to stay in industry. Or if you never get anything with your industry employer, you'd have to go back to academia in a J or an H, which is cap exempt there in order to stay. So the other change was with the, the immigration service changed the regulations, but that's yeah. not really going to affect anybody listening right now. So, you know, the changes with the H-1B from the immigration perspective was number one, the degree has to relate to the field. So, sorry, the degree field has to relate to the job. So they were really already doing that in practice, Isaiah. Like if you have a general business administration degree, then that's not really gonna relate to, you know, an, an accounting job where you would need an accounting degree. All the cheeky members, they all have technical scientific degrees and their degrees are all going to relate. The other change was with the third party placement. Those, they're only gonna approve them for one year now, but that's mostly for computer consulting firms where you know I'm working for you know ABC Consulting Company and I'm on site at Procter & Gamble and I'm doing their computer work. So that type of third party placement is gonna be limited to a year now and you have to show control which was really, you know, the way that it used to be. So those regulations aren't really affecting the cheeky scientist members, but the way right. it is, okay? Yes. And then the other new change is with the O1. So they changed the O1 analysis, and this is important for, to understand. It's not really going to change how we prepare cases, but in the EB1, Isaiah, we talk about how even if you meet three of the categories or for EB1A or two of the categories for EB1B, that if they find that you meet those categories, they can still deny your case under what's called the Kazarian standard if they feel by a preponderance of the evidence that you're not among the small percentage at the top of the field. Well, now they're doing that same kind of standard with O1. They're saying, even if you meet the three categories, we're still going to look at the totality of the circumstances to see if you're at the top of the field. So that's something that's important to know because you have to prepare the case. You know, you're, you're preparing it the same, 
but you have to, you know, make that point known to them that, that yes, this individual meets all three categories and now they are still among the small percentage. So there's these changes going on, but I come back to that. I get I-140 petitions and green cards approved on a regular basis all through this pandemic, Isaiah. I get H-1B petitions approved. The, the, you know, more on the rumors, the Trump executive orders from June, they were only limiting the right of people from overseas to get a visa and come to the United States. It's not affecting anybody who's already in the United States from applying for a green card, changing their status, et cetera. So, you know, everyone in the United States, you know, everything is business as, as usual in terms of the applications. And there was even a court order, Isaiah, on the, tra- on the executive order for certain H-1B people. There was a big consortium of technology companies that sued the government and if one of the companies was on part of the lawsuit, then their employees are no longer exempt from getting H-1Bs from overseas. So, you know, this is where we are. And the next time I talk to you, you know, there might be something new. And obviously the election, Isaiah, is it's a really big deal for immigration. But we've had four years of Trump. We've survived. If we have four more years of Trump, we'll survive. You know, they're, they're not going to shut down immigration 100% to right. the United States. That's never going to happen. There's yeah. too much economic interest, and they need the scientists here. You know, yeah. if there That's weren't the- our nationals working on COVID, we wouldn't be where we are. Yeah, and I love that we can end with that point uh, for all of you to know how valuable you are as researchers um, and that. This just makes things more competitive, which, if you think about it in the right way, is good because you're here and tens of thousands of other international PhDs are not. They're not getting this information. Uh, They're not getting information that's specific for PhDs and research uh, to getting a visa. But you are. You're here. And that's why we want to get you into the program because it's really it's a three-step process. You need to learn how to execute a job search flawlessly. Because you don't get to have the benefit of making mistakes like somebody who doesn't need a visa, let's say, does, or at least not the same amount of mistakes. The second part is you have to know which, your, which visa options are yours. And it's, it has been a dramatic change. Like Brian said, like the, you know, recommending going for an O1 visa in many more cases now, uh, a big change. And so being on the forefront, getting the right information um, because you've invested in that information and you've invested in your network, uh, like our panelists said, will help you stay ahead of that. And then finally, getting your, your documents done. And no matter who you work with, you have to pay lawyers for that. A lot of the lawyers that we've seen and, and we have uh, carefully curated them out because they're not effective. Uh, most of them you can tell by their website that they're very outdated, not effective, and I want you to stay away from them. We work with Getson & Shots because they are the premier uh, company that specializes specifically in getting researchers their visas and green cards. And you get an extra, for those of, that, for those of you that are in the international PhD community, uh, the pricing on that documentation is standard across the board for every firm. Um, but you'll get an additional 10% off, which nobody offers with Getson and Shots if you're in the international PhD community. We even have people here that have uh, went that route with uh, 
the Gets and Shots firm and have got their green card. Brian, thank you for your time, for being on the radio show and for providing your insights. This takes us to the end of this show. You can learn about this program and all of our programs at CheekyScientist.com. If you are new to your job search, you don't know which position's right for you, you can go to PhDsGetHired.com. That's plural, PhDs. GetHired.com to learn more about our flagship program, the Cheeky Scientist Association that has helped thousands of PhDs around the world get hired. It'll train you on the basics of your job search and help you find the right position for you. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. I'm Isaiah Henkel, the founder of Cheeky Scientist and the creator of the Cheeky Scientist Association. I wanted to quickly tell you that memberships into the association are available to PhDs listening to Cheeky Scientist Radio by using the coupon code CheekyRadio at www.phdsgethired.com. That's phdsgethired.com, PhDs. G-E-T-H-I-R-E-D dot com. Simply type PhDsGetHired.com into your website browser. Scroll down to the orange membership button and click on it. Then enter the coupon code CheekyRadio to get 20% off a lifetime membership now. That's CheekyRadio, C-H-E-E-K-Y-R-A-D-I-O. Remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. Are you worried about the rapidly shrinking job market? Like me, have you been seeing more and more articles on universities shutting down their research labs, furloughing employees, cutting postdocs and TAs, and even withdrawing PhD student funding? If so, it might be wise to start taking steps to protect your PhD career. You've worked very hard and very intelligently for years to establish yourself, but likely, you have not reached your full career potential yet. Perhaps you're not even getting respect and you're not getting the rewards that you deserve. The good news is you can get into an industry career where you can get paid well for doing meaningful work. All you need is the right knowledge and the right network. The Cheeky Scientist Association gives you lifetime access to the world's number one PhD-only job search training platform with multiple courses and the PhD-only job referral network of over 10,000-plus industry PhDs. Now is your chance to become a lifetime member for 20% off of the association. Just use the coupon code CheekyRadio at www.phdsgethired.com. That's phdsgethired.com. P-H-D-S-G-E-T-H-I-R-E-D. Dot com. Simply type phdsgethired.com into your website browser, scroll to the orange membership button and click on it and enter the coupon code CheekyRadio to get 20% off a lifetime membership now. No recurring monthly fees, no recurring annual fees, nobody else offers this. phdsgethired.com, use the coupon code CheekyRadio. Remember your value as a PhD and remember that knowledge is power and your network is your net worth.